Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. And today we'll be reading from Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, as we continue in our spiritual warfare series. Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Hear now the reading of God's word. Let's give our attention and reverence. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of God's wrath came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. And this word marveled here in this context is certainly not a positive one. The book of Revelation is definitely one of the tougher books of the Bible. Uh, it's filled with a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism. And there are various interpretations that you could find of any particular text in the book of Revelation. But one thing that the book of Revelation does well for us, for our purposes, especially in this sermon series on spiritual warfare, is that it really gives us this great behind-the-scenes look at spiritual realities. Throughout Revelation, we see Satan, even though he's ultimately defeated at the cross, we see how he works so hard to do much damage, to do as much damage as he can in the world, and especially to the church, until Christ returns. And in our passage today, we actually see a description of one of his minions sent to do that aforementioned damage, and that is the great prostitute. This character, this figure of the great prostitute is also referred to as Babylon in our passage. And Babylon, of course, is the capital city of a very powerful and prosperous empire, the Babylonian Empire, that we see quite prominently, especially in the Old Testament. And basically, here in our passage and throughout Revelation, the great prostitute represents the kingdoms of this world the systems and powers in our culture that ultimately go against Christ. And we see in our passage that Babylon, the great prostitute, is attractive. She is attractive. She ensnares many people with pleasures and prosperity. But Revelation 17 also allows us to see the true ugliness underneath all that adornment. It gives us spiritual eyes to see spiritual realities. And our passage warns us and reminds us that spiritual warfare, it isn't always overt. It isn't always something overt like some demonic attack. It isn't always overt like uh, government persecution. But sometimes it's simply the subtle influence of the kingdoms of the world. The subtle influence 
of even our culture, whether we're talking about American culture, Asian culture, pop culture, just the culture around us. And perhaps this, the attacks of the great prostitute, are the most dangerous form of satanic attack because it's the sneakiest, because it is subtle, because it isn't so overt. You know, I've heard stories of people experiencing some kind of demonic oppression or attack, and that led them even closer to Jesus, ultimately, naturally, because they were freaked out and they ran to Jesus. I've even heard stories of people who experienced religious persecution from the government, and ultimately they're emboldened. Their strength is, is, uh, their faith is strengthened. But when you experience persecution, when you experience the allures of the great prostitute, a lot of times our, our affections get weakened. A lot of times it's a sneaky attack. I remember some missionaries from China sharing about how the greatest enemy of the cross even in China, is not the communist, anti-religious government. But these missionaries shared with me, the greatest enemy of the cross is actually just worldliness, an overfixation, an, an obsession with success and wealth and prosperity and pleasure and beauty. And they were telling me, basically, that's what keeps people from coming to Christ, not the government and government persecution, but simply worldliness. It reminds me of something that uh, the theologian D.A. Carson once wrote. He wrote, Most of us are thankful to God that we live in a democracy. But I have met Christians who live in parts of the world under one form of tyranny or another. And they pray for us that we will escape the tyranny of the seduction of easy triumphalism and materialism. The seduction of easy triumphalism and materialism. That is Babylon. That is the great prostitute. Now, before I go further, I do need to offer a counterpoint for us to think about. Uh, as we consider the cultures and kingdoms of this world, we must remember that we do believe in what we call common grace. Uh, that human industry, human creativity, human flourishing are ultimately gifts from God. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's the idea. That's why we call it common grace, that it's a graciousness that God has towards all people. And of course, human beings are created in the image of God. And although we are fallen and sin has spoiled the image of God in all of us, the human race has not completely lost out on all the good gifts and graces that God offers to human beings. So we have to remember that, that we do believe in common grace. And, and considering that, I do want to offer just some potential pitfalls for us as we seek to engage with culture and the cultures and kingdoms of this world. Here is the first potential pitfall. The first pitfall is withdrawing from culture. Uh, when, when you're of this mentality, where you just want to withdraw from culture, basically the idea is we don't, that's a lack of belief in common grace, just assuming all culture is bad, and we don't engage culture at all, and we create our own little isolated communities, our own little holy huddles, our own little bubbles. I think back to when I was uh, a teenager and became a follower of Christ for the first time. 
And during that time, I remember, I, I, I've shared this story with you before as well. For some reason, I just thought it was right. It was the right thing to do as a Christian to get rid of all my secular music CDs. You know, I heard of other pastors uh, who, who said they never listened to secular music. I heard of more extreme churches where they even like burned their secular music CDs. And I just thought that's the right thing to do if you're a Christian. So I went to the local warehouse music. Shout out to everyone who remembers warehouse music. And I just sold all my secular CDs for like a dollar each. And then, of course, like 10, 15 years later, I realized it wasn't all bad. And I ended up rebuying a lot of them. Uh, and, I, and I got them all back. I got most of them back. That, that would be an example of withdrawing from culture. Just I want to have nothing to do with the common culture around me. The second potential pitfall is trying to Christianize culture. Now, when I say trying to Christianize culture, I'm not talking about evangelism or seeing all of life through a Christian lens because we're all supposed to be doing that. But it's more of a forced, uh, potentially inauthentic attachment of the word Christian in front of everything. As if, uh, if it doesn't have Christian in front of it, then it's not good. There's no way it can be good. And for example, we, when we try to force uh, Christian in front of perhaps our secular work or the arts or even politics or other things that are meant for the common good. If we're sticking with that music CD analogy, I think about Christian rap in the late 90s, early 2000s. Now, thanks be to God, thanks be to God that Christian rap now is so good and it's so thoughtful and so skillful, and it, it, it's truly good now. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, it really did feel forced and Christianized and, and kind of cheesy. And that, that was another pitfall. That still is a pitfall for, for many of us. So the first one is withdrawing from culture. Secondly, Christ, trying to Christianize culture. And here's the third potential pitfall, and that is embracing culture wholesale. This is the pendulum swing the other way. You might say, well, I, I believe in common grace. Uh, and I don't want to be like those people who withdraw from culture. I don't want to be like those people who um, try to Christianize culture. But instead, we let the pendulum swing too far. And we submerge in culture without really ever challenging it. Sticking with the music analogy again. It's, it's kind of like this one time where I listened to the rap music that I used to listen to as a teenager. I listened to it recently, maybe about a year ago. And I was truly shocked. I felt, it made me feel old, but I was truly shocked at some of the lyrics and, and how hateful and even misogynistic uh, the, the, some of the lyrics were. And I really thought to myself, how did I listen to this when I was younger? And I couldn't keep listening to it. We can't just take everything in wholesale. And as you consider these three potential pitfalls, withdrawing, Christianizing, or simply, simply embracing culture wholesale, I do want to ask you, which one do you tend to fall into? What is the, the most likely pitfall for you? At the risk of generalizing, what would you say is the potential pitfall, pitfall that our church, Christ Central, is most likely to fall into just as a whole. If I had to guess, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably that third one where we embrace culture wholesale. Uh, 
And of course, this third, this third pitfall is most relevant for our passage today in Revelation 17. Because our passage teaches us, as it depicts the great prostitute, it teaches us actually that culture is not neutral. We aren't supposed to just take everything in wholesale. We are supposed to discern and see with spiritual eyes to see what lies underneath the external beauty and adornment that the world and even our own cultures often show us. I love what uh, the Christian author, Os Guinness, once shared in an interview. He said that when his son was five years old, they would play this game where when they were watching TV and after a commercial played on the TV, he would ask his son, spot the lie, spot the lie. Basically, he said, if you can tell me what are some of the lies that that commercial told, even subtly, I'll give you a quarter for every single lie you can think of. And, and basically, it was his way of teaching his son to have a discerning eye, to not just take everything in. And for us as God's people, as we are warned about this great prostitute that is doing Satan's work, we are warned to have a discerning eye, to see with spiritual eyes. And more importantly, we are warned to guard our hearts as we consider all that culture throws at us. You know, throughout the scriptures, sexual immorality and adultery, of course, as depicted in this great prostitute, is often a symbol, especially in the Old Testament prophets. It's a symbol of unfaithfulness to God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world. And, and the love of the world has, is, is not compatible with the love of the Father, John tells us. And that's what the great prostitute ultimately wants to do. She wants to get your heart. She doesn't just want to get you to break some rules and do some bad things, but ultimately she wants to get your heart. Our passage in Revelation 17 speaks of being drunk with her wine, and it's ultimately a seduction, an intoxication of the heart, of your heart that she's after. And she does that using in our passage and in passages like 1 John 2, in passages like Genesis 3, we see her using things like beauty, pleasure, and prosperity to grab our hearts, to gain our hearts, to gain our affections, to cause our affections for Christ to dwindle. And Revelation 17 shows us, but it's ugly on the inside. It's ugly on the inside. I can't help but think of uh, the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland. I know it's been a long time since anyone has been there. But if you recall, that ride has this one area where you see these various uh, paintings on the wall. And these paintings depict just everyday pleasant scenes, seemingly innocuous scenes. But as these paintings start to magically stretch, you, you begin to see that these scenes that they're depicting depicting are actually perilous and even disturbing. And I really do believe that's what Revelation 17 is doing for us. In verses 3 and 4, it says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. Revelation 17 first shows us a woman, and then that that picture gets stretched, and you find that she's actually sitting on top of this scarlet beast, another character from Revelation, another minion of Satan, a demonic force, a, a false prophet. Some even say the beast is actually the Antichrist. And the picture gets stretched, and you realize this is no, just this isn't just some woman. And of course, you see this woman, and she looks beautiful. She even looks royal in the the adornments she's wearing. But the picture gets stretched, and no, she is actually a prostitute. You see the cup that she's holding. It's gold. It's, It's shiny. It's beautiful. But the picture gets stretched, and it's filled with filth and abominations. And our passage today is warning us and giving us these, this great behind-the-scenes look and telling us you must see the stretched picture. You must see with spiritual eyes. And we have to ask ourselves, am I simply appreciating and enjoying common grace, which is a good thing to do, or am I being seduced by the great prostitute? I hope you do ask yourself that question. I hope you ask yourself that question often. And we do have to ask ourselves, how do I know if it's the great prostitute that's coming after me or if I am just simply, you know, appreciating beauty, which isn't a bad thing? Or, you know, am I just simply enjoying God-given pleasures? That's not a bad thing to do either. After all, God is a God of pleasure. Uh, In Psalm 16, it tells us, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Of course, it's not a bad thing uh, just to want better for my life, to want to prosper, to want my family to prosper. That's not bad in and of itself. So how how do I know if it is the great prostitute that I'm being seduced by rather than just simply enjoying the gifts and the common grace gifts of God? I like how one scholar puts it. In specifically talking about worldliness with regard to beauty, he says, worldliness when it comes to beauty is the love of beauty divorced from the love of goodness. Basically, the love of beauty. Are are you so fixated on the external appearance and how things look and how social media presents yourself or the things that you like without asking yourself, but is this actually good? Is this really good on the inside? Is there, is there character being displayed here? And you could add any of these other things to that. The love of pleasure divorced from the love of goodness. The love of pleasure divorced from the love of self-control. Divorced from the love of uh, uh, finding pleasure in the things of God. Or the love of prosperity divorced from the love of goodness. The love of prosperity divorced from a love of integrity and honesty. Divorced from a love of generosity. And of course, even further you would say, it's the love of these things divorced from the love of God himself. Where we end up loving the gifts 
much more than we love the giver of those good gifts. Another great litmus test is where do I find my worth ultimately? Where do I find my sense of value even as a human being? Is it, am I chasing after beauty, prosperity, and pleasure to ultimately define my value? Let me tell you right now, our, our, the scriptures tell us these things will all pass away. These things will never be enough. The great prostitute loves to, t- to lie to our hearts as if, if, if we just have more beauty or more pleasure or more prosperity, then, then we'll finally be satisfied. But it's a lie. These things can never truly satisfy and they are fading and passing away. A historian by the name of Gary Cross once wrote that the assumption of 19th century philosophers was that we wouldn't have to work so much in the future. Uh, even, someone even predicted maybe we would only have two-hour work days in the future. Back in the 19th century, some people thought that because technology was getting better and we would eventually have everything we need. So we would work less. And then this historian, Gary Cross, says, of course, those 19th century philosophers were wrong. And he writes, we never have maxed out on goods. Now we, now we realize that goods are not essentially about satiating material needs, physical needs, but rather psychological and social ones. And those needs, it would appear, are absolutely endless. Oh, isn't that the great strategy of the great prostitute? To make beauty, pleasure, prosperity, the pursuit of these things, the overfixation and obsession on these things, to make them into insatiable psychological and social needs. To cause us to run to these things, to run to the, the, the beauties and gifts of our world and our culture, to ultimately try to fulfill not physical needs, but spiritual ones. Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, 18 to 20 gives us this warning, but also this encouragement. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a quick spoiler alert. In the remainder of the book of Revelation, after our passage, we see that the great prostitute, the beast, Satan himself, and all who follow them, they are ultimately destroyed by Jesus himself. And our scriptures continue to warn us in various passages, even Apostle Paul in Philippians, that the end of these things are destruction. And even now, the gifts and goodies of this world, the the, the lies of the great prostitute, they are even passing away and fading even now. And, And they will not ultimately satisfy. They will not ultimately fill those spiritual needs that we have. 
Now, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll be the first to confess. Those sorts of allures, they're real. They are alluring. It is easy to, to get caught up uh, and, and, and to get subtly seduced by the allures of beauty and prosperity and pleasures. Oh, I, know, I know that personally. I've, I've experienced that personally. And I'm sure you have as well. I'm sure you're dealing with that even now. And perhaps even during COVID, as some of these things were taken away from you, you've, it's been revealed to you how much you held on to them, how much you clung to them, how, much, how fixated you, are, you were and are on these things. And you know who else understands this temptation? It's Jesus himself. Jesus also experienced that sort of temptation of the great prostitute. In the Gospels, we, we recall when he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan took him aside and he took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, right? If that's not the allures of the great prostitute, I don't know what is. And Satan said to Jesus, I will give you all of this if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus replied, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Brothers and sisters, Jesus resisted the great prostitute so that you can actually have forgiveness for all the times you failed to. But it goes further than that. It goes further. Jesus also died on a cross and he rose again so that now you can have a new heart, new eyes to see that truly Jesus is so much greater than all that this world could offer. Only Jesus can satisfy. He died and rose again so that you could finally understand that and see that and feel that. And he especially shows us that when we consider the difference between having a prostitute as your lover and having a spouse. Think about the difference between a prostitute and a spouse. They are very different. With a prostitute, you got to buy. You got to earn. You got to earn the prostitute as your lover because you have to pay for it ultimately. But with a faithful husband, a faithful wife, you never have to earn their love. You never have to pay for their love. And if a marriage should start to feel that way, that is actually a distortion of marriage. And Jesus comes and he says, you don't have to pay. It is finished. I paid the price in full on that cross. I've done all the work. You don't have to earn my love. You don't have to earn your worth. You don't have to earn your status as beloved sons and daughters of God. So stop running to the prostitute who keeps making you work for it, who keeps making you pay for it, and who will ultimately never even satisfy you. I love what one of my professors, Dr. Dennis Johnson, once wrote. No idol can promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The idols of our hearts are unforgiving, because they always belong to a system of works righteousness. Fulfill expectations, you will live. Fail, and you die. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only one who can tell you, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You don't have to earn my love. You don't have to earn your worth. You are precious in his sight. I don't know what your struggles are. We're all different. Perhaps you find yourself fixated on beauty, whether it's your own beauty or you chase after beauty, whether it's uh, a fixation on pleasure or you just are looking for the next pleasure, the next fix. Or perhaps it's just that pursuit of prosperity that has overtaken your heart. We all struggle with the temptations of the great prostitute. She is working hard to weaken our affections for Jesus. But would you, as you search the scriptures, as you read Revelation 17, as you read all of the scriptures, and as you pray and as you come to Christ again and again, would the Holy Spirit continue to give you eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see, that none of those things will ever, ever be enough. That Christ is the only one who can offer this sort of unfailing love, this love that you don't have to work for and pay for. I pray that this would be what God impresses upon all our hearts today and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize truly as Satan tries to attack us in so many different ways, as he wages war against all people and especially your church in so many different ways. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes more and more to be savvy and mindful of the attacks of the great prostitute in the ways that this world tries to get us to love the world instead of loving Christ. Lord, be with my brothers and sisters, whatever their struggles may be, whatever their temptations may be. Lord, we know the answer is not just to try harder or just to just stop doing these things. But we know the answer is ultimately to take a greater look at that which is greater Jesus himself. Oh, help us to see Jesus more and more. Help us to see his glory, his beauty, his all-satisfying love more and more. And would the things of this world grow strangely dim as a result. Help us, we pray. Holy Spirit, guide your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.